0: In the context of talking about singing this morning, I want to reconclude the series that we've simply been calling Something Precious. I know Pastor David concluded the series last week, but every now and then the Lord says, is this my church or is it yours? I have more to say about Something Precious and we want to continue and therefore conclude this series that we're simply calling Something Precious. And we've been pairing this Uh, Series with uh, a 21-day fast that we've been on. And some of you have been watching the the, the calendar. We're on day 20, which means there's one more day left. So hang on. Hold on. There's one more day left. And Sister Cassandra reminding me to remind you today that as we near the end of this fast, that we haven't just engaged this as a test of our will and endurance. We've engaged this fast because we are expecting God to show up We're expecting him to speak. We're expecting him to move. And so as we near the end of this fast, I've been given orders by Sister Cassandra. I call her auntie. Auntie said, tell them to be expectant. And so I'm telling you to be expectant. And we're situated. Yeah, yeah, give it up. Situated in this 21 days of fasting and prayer, pairing it with this series, focusing on bringing God something precious. Something meaningful, something important. King David says, I won't bring God something that costs me nothing. And so we've been talking about the precious things that we are to bring to God. We've talked so far about prayer. We talked about generosity. Pastor David did a fantastic job last week about talking about our future, our hopes and dreams. Bringing that to God is something precious. And today I want to continue and conclude this series by focusing on singing. Singing. Uh, and singing is situated in the conversation, the broader conversation on worship, Christian worship in general, right? And you've heard me talk about worship many times, and what I say about worship is that we are all expert worshipers. Doesn't matter where you are in the spectrum of faith, doesn't matter what your orientation is to God and the spiritual life. You may not know this, but this preacher is telling you that we are all expert worshipers because we're all worshiping something. We're all worshiping something. We We all have something perched on the throne of our heart. We're all bowing to something, particularly when it comes to the various nouns of our life. And as we're in a situation where we're measuring where our attention and our affection goes, many of you might have been brought to being present to the things that you are worshiping or the things that have your heart. And so we don't struggle with worship so much as we struggle with finding the proper object of our worship. We don't struggle with something sitting on the throne of our heart. We struggle uh, trying to figure out what to put on the throne of our heart And that's the broader conversation that we regularly have About worship as a lifestyle and the spiritual life in general But today I want to get super granular I want to zoom all the way in on a particular aspect of worship And that is the singing The singing and the message that I'm simply calling Don't stop singing And I might put an asterisk there because some of you all hadn't started yet. So, for some of you, we could call this message Start Singing. But, giving you the benefit of the doubt, we're calling this message simply Don't Stop Singing. Now, if you know me, you know that I uh, am a music lover and that I am constantly trying to figure out what next concert to go, next instrument to buy, how to get a new cymbal or a new guitar or something, and the music lovers in here are like, yes, others of you are like, I don't understand why you would spend any money on that, right? But my goal isn't to impose my affinity for music on you or to suggest in the least that in order to be a devout Christian worshiper that you need to love music. Or, or uh, adopt a certain posture to music. I'm, I'm present to the fact that I love music and I have a lot of zeal and zest for music in general, worship music in particular. I don't want to impose that on you. I want to name that at the outset. However, I do want to cultivate a value for what the scriptures describe as an appropriate response to God's goodness, an appropriate response for the Christian, for the believer. It's all throughout Scripture, and we're going to use just as a springboard text this morning a famous passage of text in Psalm 150. If you can meet me there in your Bibles this morning, Psalm 150. There are paper Bibles on the edges of your rows. Feel free to grab that Bible and use it today. By the way, if you don't have a Bible at home that you can understand, uh, you can feel free to take that Bible home as a gift from us to you. It, It is a free gift, just take it home. You can also engage with the scriptures this morning through your mobile devices or through your tablets or whatever. And we'll also be projecting the words on the screens. I'm looking at Psalm chapter 150 today and the message that I'm calling, don't stop singing while you find that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, we thank you for your mercy, we thank you for the opportunity, it is an opportunity to gather today to worship you without fear of being rounded up and thrown in prison or any you know, pronounced persecution, we thank you that in the West we can do that. It's a privilege. And Father, I pray that you would teach us today. I pray that our posture toward you would be one of attentiveness, that we would be rich, tilled soil, so that whatever you want to place inside would have a fertile place to grow. Father, I pray that we will respond to you today in the way that you find appropriate. Put power, Lord, on these words you've given me to speak this morning. Would you move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Psalm chapter 150, I'm going to start at verse 1. Psalm, says this, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heaven. Praise him for his mighty works and praise Him, uh, praise his unequaled greatness. Praise him with a blast of the ram's horn. Praise him with a lyre and harp. Praise him with a tambourine and dancing. Praise him with strings and flutes. Praise him with a clash of cymbals. Praise him with loud clanging cymbals. Let everything that breathes, let everything that breathes sing praises to the Lord. And in case you missed it, he throws it in there one more time. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. What a great text. What a fitting text for our subject matter today. And this is one of those sections of scripture that show up in my earliest memories as a boy growing up in church. I often refer to myself as a PK and somebody grabbed me after service one day and said, what is a PK? A PK is a, is a preacher's kid, I'm a church kid. I grew up in church and a lot of, the, a lot of my early memories are, are from church lots of Sunday schools and Bible studies, lots of quoting and memorizing scripture at home as a preacher's kid, right, and this is one of the, st- the texts that's a part of what, what I might consider my core Christian memories. Uh, that collection of songs and scriptures and sermons and illustrations that that never leave you if you grew up in church, right? This is among them. Only I I remember this like in the King James Version because that's the version of the Bible that we use in our church. So they would say, praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. And you don't have to know what firmament means, but using context clues, you get that it's significant, right? You get that it's important. You, you get that it's something regal. Let everything that hath breath praise ye the Lord. Now, I've come to appreciate and therefore understand this text a whole lot better as an adult, but even as a kid, I got this notion that this is big. This is primal, this is important, and this is comprehensive. The psalmist wants everyone to know what is expected when it comes to Christian worship. He details for us where we are to worship God, and he gives us two examples. In the sanctuary and in his mighty heaven. Sanctuary, we're situated now, it's a place on earth. Then he says in his mighty heaven, and I've come to believe that this, these are bookends, right? This is a range. You can praise God on earth and in the sanctuary and in his mighty heaven. And so I take this to mean that everywhere in between is a place where God is to be praised. The psalmist go deeper and tell us why we should praise. Praise him for his mighty works. Praise him for his unequaled greatness and the more life I live and the older I get, no matter what might come, no matter what might come, I've come to see that God is good, right? You will not believe it, talk to one of the older seasoned saints. You know, I lead a small group on Tuesday, and I think I'm the youngest one there, populated with all these lovely seniors, some of them with a crown of gray hair, And as they tell their stories, as we're discussing the lessons over and over, a theme comes up over and over as they tell their stories, as they discuss the tragedies of their life, the circumstances that blindsided them, they say over and over, in a dozen different ways, God is good. And there's nothing too hard for them. And so the psalmist helps us to hear and read what our souls already know is that God is mighty and that he is, he's good. The psalmist proceeds then to tell us how to worship God, and this is an interesting list. Praise praise him with a blast of the ram's horn. Anybody got a ram's horn with them today? In the car maybe? No, okay. Praise him with a lyre and harp. Praise him with a tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flutes. Praise him with the clash of cymbals and praise him with the loud clanging cymbals, horns, harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, dancing. This is not a quiet praise. This isn't acute praise. This isn't even particularly dignified because I know some of y'all like to be dignified. And some of y'all are cooler than the other side of the pillow. And you want us and God to know it. But the psalmist says it might get loud when you worship. It might be audacious when you worship. It is unmistakable when you worship. It is conspicuous. In all the right ways and to the uninitiated, it might look ridiculous. To the uninitiated, it might look foolish. And the verse seems purposefully specific about how we are to worship. And what is implied all the way through this is who should worship. That is, until we get to the final verse. Then it gets specific. He says, unequivocally, that everything that, what, breathes, praise the Lord. This makes no distinction between human or beast, saved or unsaved, whether you're a curious skeptic, a sincere agnostic, an angry atheist, or you're saved, sanctified with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Everybody that breathes should praise the Lord. All creation, If it breathes, let it worship the Lord, and the the, the psalmist actually says, with singing. I'm not making this up. It's there. And so I believe that this text and others like it aims at people who are tempted to think when it comes to the singing, when it comes to that particular part of worship that some of us can take or leave, It, it just aims itself at those who are tempted to think, man, it don't really take all that. Settle down. For those who might be tempted to say, I- I'm not really an expressive person. Or the person who might say, I- I'm not really usually into music like that. Or to the person who might say, I don't come here, Brother Allison, for the singing. This passage aims itself at you. I don't come here for all that. Well, let me ask you a question, and I mean this really, Why'd you come? Well, that's not snarky. I want you to sit with a question, Why, why'd you come today? Now the answers to that question could be as varied as the clothes and shoes that we're wearing. I passed the mic and asked, and, and I gave you a pill that you could only answer honestly. The answers might vary. Why are you here? Why'd you come? If you were forced to answer, honestly, some of you will say, well, pastor, I am a cultural Christian. And that's what our family does every other week. Or every third week. Or or if we don't have anything else planned. Or if law and order SVU isn't running a marathon. Like, that's what we do. We, We come to church. That's just what we do. It's not any deeper than that. Somebody else might answer, I really come because I like the people. And honestly, this is the only place that I ever regularly go where, where uh, uh, people act like they're happy to see me. And I'm treated with dignity and respect. All the other stuff I can take or leave, but I, I, I come for the people. Others of you might say, I, I, I hear they got some decent preachers down there at the Vineyard Church. And that there's men and women preachers, there's black folks that preach, white folks that preach, Hispanic folks that preach, and I heard the sermons are decent. I come late and I leave early because I come to hear a good word because it makes me feel good for the rest of the week. I come for the preaching. Well, God bless you. Others of you might say, I actually come before the, for the music. I like the way it makes me feel. I love the songs. It's positive. It's uplifting. I come for the music. Others of you might say, my kids like it here. Others of you say, my teenager likes it here. We don't care for the church that much, but the kids get excited, so we'll go. And others of you might say, I heard there's some fine sisters there, and I'm trying to get me one. Some good-looking brother's down there, and I thought maybe one or two of them would be available. Whatever your reason is, that's why you come to church. And what this comically frames for us is that many of us have missed the point of Christian worship. Because many of us, if not all of us, move toward this place on Sunday morning because of what we get here. And not because of what we bring here. I want to slow down on this part. Most of us come here because of what we get here and not for what we bring here. I hope what they do there pleases me and my family. And if it doesn't, we're out of there. I hope we can fill our pockets with some stuff to take with us to get through our week And if I can't fill my pockets with stuff that I like, that suits me, like the consumer that I am, I'm going someplace else. And we've forgotten or have never been told that worship is about bringing something. And worship is about bringing something. Honestly, bringing it with a little bit of trembling, hoping that the object of your worship is pleased by it. Worship is framed as a sacrifice, because honestly, that's what it used to be. I brought something of value, an animal, or some harvest from my land, the best of what I got, something precious, and I brought it and I laid it to the altar, and I didn't think about what I could take back with me or what the preacher was going to be talking about or if they played the songs that I like, I was too preoccupied in figuring out if the Lord would would accept this offering. I'm too busy inspecting what I might bring to him to see if it has a blemish on it. Examining myself, Lord, did I pick over the good crops and bring you the rotten fruit? Did I bring you the three-legged goat instead of my prized one? Like I'm preoccupied by what I bring to the offering table. You see what I'm saying? something precious, something costly, something sacrificial. And most of us have misunderstood Christian worship, and that is why you don't sing. That's why you don't sing. Or why you only sing when you feel like it. Or why you only sing when they play your jams. Or are you only sing when the gospel band is up here? Because you like black song. You like that foot stomping, toe tapping, right? And every fourth Sunday or so, when that band rolls around, you go, okay, I'm going to sing today because, okay, Alan's here. Leisha's up there. All right, they're about to take us in, right? Or maybe you you can't really, you can't figure out how to clap to that music. Or that's not in your heart language. And you show it. And all we got to do is look at you. Or maybe you like the the straight-down-the-middle CCM stuff. You know, you like that stuff, and you go, well, I'll sing now. Or today, we bust out the corritos. You say, okay, se moverá, se moverá, and that's going to be living rent-free in your head for the whole week, I promise you, right? You sing when you feel like it. Most of us approach worship in this preference-driven way, especially when it comes to singing. And if you didn't gather this already from what the psalmist told you, our singing glorifies God. The word says that he inhabits the praises or he comes to dwell in the presence of his people because he comes to hang out where people have postured themselves not to get, but to bring a pleasing offering of worship. God is glorified in the singing, and I think that's plain from the text here, but I wanna give you four other reasons to never stop singing and worship to God. I'm gonna tick them off real quick. The first is our singing is an act of obedience. Our singing is an act of obedience. This is gonna be news to some of you because you've taken it as a suggestion. You've taken it as one of those things. Well, there's a wide, you know, there's a myriad ways to worship God, do generosity, do prayer, right, time alone with the Lord, and singing is just one of them. But if you search the Scripture, singing isn't presented to us as optional. You don't believe me? Google, what does the Bible say about singing? I do that every week for whatever subject I'm talking about. I know you thought it was deeper than that, but that's where I start with Google. What does the Bible say about, and pages, and pages peppered throughout all the scriptures. So don't take my word for it. If you read the scriptures, you see how it is framed, you will discover that our singing is an act of obedience. That is, it's presented to us simply as what believers do. It's how they show up, or at least one of the main ways they show up in worship. It's what they bring to Jesus' party they sing. Now, how many of you um, um, uh, have sung the happy birthday song to somebody, like recently, right? You're at a birthday party or something like that, and they sing happy birthday, right? You could even be at Chili's. And three tables over, somebody either has a birthday or is lying about their birthday to get that little free cake that they give them, and you will stop what you're doing. Some of you will stop what you're doing, and you will sing happy birthday because you don't even know that person, but you're singing it because of their birthday, right? Now, if I ask some of you to take out your phone, to show me your Spotify in your Apple iTunes where you've saved happy birthday to your, your favorites. Like you probably don't even have that song. Maybe you got the Stevie Wonder version to Martin Luther King, but I'm not talking about I'm talking about the regular happy birthday song. Is it in your iTunes right now? Is it in your Spotify right now? Would it be listed as your, one of your favorite songs? No. So why do you sing it? You sing it because it's somebody's birthday. You sing it because that's what we do when somebody starts singing for somebody's birthday. You don't got to love it. You don't even got to like the person whose birthday it is. But that's what we do when they bring that cake out. In the same way, this is what we do when we show up to worship. I've already read to you Psalm 150, and it's peppered throughout all of the scriptures because it's God's cosmic way of saying, sing because I said so. If you grew up with a black mother, you know that's like page one of the black mother's handbook, because I said so. Sometimes you'll get an explanation, other times you'll get because I said so. It's an act of obedience. Ephesians 5, verse 18, Paul says this, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. Colossians three, sixteen: Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. What? Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with a thankful heart. Now, here's what I know. For some of us, this is easier than for others of us. That's what I know. That's what I know about all the spiritual disciplines because of how we're wired and because of how we're socialized and maybe because how we were spiritually formed, some of these practices are easier for some than others. It's easier for some people to be generous than others. Easier for some people to treat others well. Easy for some of us to be humble than others. And for some of us, it's easier for us to sing than others. And for those of you who struggle with this, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, any serious follower of Jesus needs to examine themselves because this is not a suggestion. It is a command. And we are obedient Because though we can't understand it, it may not make sense to us. It may cut against the grain of our sensibilities. We're obedient because we know God knows what's best for us. And this is an act of obedience. Second thing is that our singing roots us in Scripture. It roots us in Scripture like little else can. And might I be very specific here, good songs, true songs, thoughtfully biblically written songs, the best songs, regardless of the musical arrangement, regardless of the language that it is in, tethers us to the scriptures, tethers us to the word of God like little else because the good songs, the faithful worship creatives are, are singing songs that are ripped from pages of scripture. In fact, some of the best songs and hymns are actual scriptures that have been put to a beautiful melody. Maybe a word or two is changed for poetic, you know, they've taken some poetic liberties, but they're songs about God and songs to God, songs of praise, worship, confession, and lament, and I'm just telling you all this because it matters which songs we sing. How do you think we pick the set? We just look at what's the most popular song. Some of the most popular songs aren't worth the, the paper they were written on. We take great effort to choose the set. You should see the back and forth between me and the worship leaders every week. I know they get tired of me. And sometimes it's a blessing and a curse to have a musical senior pastor if you're a worship leader, right? But I know that I wish I could show you the text. We're trying to make sure that what we're talking about and what we're singing about is on song and ultimately that the music is true. And sometimes we'll really love a song because it's jamming. We like the arrangement. It's really popular in the church world. But it's certain certainly, we just say, man, this isn't true. This isn't, this doesn't ring true singing is important because it roots us in scripture cj Mahaney calls singing take home theology take home theology think of it as carry out for your soul pastor tom olson says this singing stands alongside preaching as one of the two great ways that god has ordained for his word to dwell richly in each one of us. I'll read that again. Singing stands alongside preaching, what I'm doing right now, as one of the two great ways that God has ordained for his word to dwell richly in each one of us. Now, I just read you Colossians chapter 3. Let the message about Jesus Christ and all its richness fill your lives. In other words, it says dwell in you. And then a few sentences later, he says sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with grateful hearts. Not coincidental, because it's one of the ways that the word is planted in your heart. And what does the scripture say? Lord, your word have I hid in my heart. So what? So that I might not sin against you, so that the posture of my heart is correct before you. There's an aligning, calibrating reality to singing that we must lean towards. It's take home theology because, as much as I'd like you to love my preaching, you don't go home singing my sermon points. You're not humming point three of this message. What are you humming at the urinal, <laughs> over the dishwashing sink? What are you humming? You're humming the take home theology. I am a friend of God. He called me friend. Great is thy faithfulness. O oh, Lord, my Father. There is no shadow of turning. Right? And we even taught you some take-home theology in a different language today. Say more of it up. Say more of it up. And what does that do? Because sometimes that humming and singing, it's involuntary. It overtakes you. You're singing and you don't even know it. That song which you sang out of obedience on Sunday is seasoning your heart during the dark night of the soul and you don't even know it. You understand what I'm saying to you? And if I could just press a little bit deeper, I think there's a tie to the music that we listen to. For those of us who are prone to fill our ears and our hearts with garbage, you are disciples for better or worse by, by the media you consume. And I don't need to get super granular with that or, or legalistic and, and provide for you a list of what Christians do and don't listen to, but if you're in a dark night of your soul, if you're overcome with thoughts and things that cut against the grain of what God would have for you in your life, you might start by taking inventory of what has been entering your ear and eye gates. For we are discipled by what we listen to, even more so by those things in which we sing and say. I'm preaching to somebody today. Take home theology because our singing is rooted in Scripture. Moving right along here. Our singing, third thing, is good for you and the people around you. It's good for you and the people around you. you Have ever been at a concert and they sing like that one song or that hit that they have and ever, before you know it everybody's singing the song and you have, you've got your arm around some stranger, you never met this person, and they don't mind because they've got their arm around the next person and they're singing this song with fervor and, and everybody's united and it, nobody knows anybody but everybody knows everybody. There's something about communal singing both sacred and secular. Our singing is a communal confession. In this place, in the house of worship, where we came not to get something or just to get something, where we came to bring something, singing is a communal confession of faith, hope, love, and so much more. And even if I don't feel like it in the moment, you and others around you can have the ...opportunity to have your hearts converted toward what we're singing. That ever happened to you? Come in dragging the floor and it takes it's all, it took all you can muster to just get here. And as obedience to the Lord, because you're concerned about your sacrifice and you dare not let your feelings dictate the praise you bring to the Lord, you start mumbling the chord. And they're singing about joy. And they're singing about victory. And the circumstances of your life are everything but victorious. And you're doing everything but winning. But as you sing, your heart is converted. As you sing, the spirit latches a hold to what's true about those songs, which is why we gotta sing what's true. And something on the inside is moved by those words. And those words sometimes are not how we feel or where we are, whether we're singing about trust or expectation or victory. Oftentimes they give us something to ascend to, to aspire to, something to reach for And it's not uncommon that a tear rolls down your face as you sing these songs. That your lip begins to quiver or your hands begin to moisten because something of the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of those lyrics and therefore grabs a hold of you. And what I know because I've been that person is sometimes things are so rough I can't muster the courage to sing for myself. My sister Evelyn's on one side of me and I hear her singing. And Brother Steve's on the other side of me and I hear him singing. And there's somebody's in front of me that couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, but they are singing and something happens to me and to them. Has that ever happened to you? This is why you got to get over yourself when it comes to worship. This is why you got to get past yourself when it comes to the singing. It ain't about you. singing is good for you and the people around you. Whether you're in the house of worship or you're in the big house, whether you're in the slammer. And some of you know the story, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, they deliver a demonized woman unbeknownst to them, she is the slave of some people who she makes a lot of money. She makes a lot of money and because They freed this woman from her demonic oppression. They are thrown into prison. And what do they do? Do they ask for their phone call? They Ask for a little time on the wreck yard? No, 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 they take to singing. They take to singing. Verse 25, Acts 16, 25, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were what? Listening. They were listening. People notice. And something about their singing was doing a work both in their heart, no doubt God was using it to bless others. Our singing is good for us and others. There's so many more that I can include here, but this fourth and final one is this. Our singing lets us practice being good audience members. Uh, good audience members. I debated whether they even put this one in here because it feels a bit unspiritual to me but as I sat with it, it is deeply spiritual. That's also super important because I think some of us know how to be on the stage but we're terrible audience members. I have sons who are emerging as musicians and oftentimes you'll see them on the stage. You saw my oldest boy, Joe on the keys today. And it's not uncommon that if I'm not in the band, I'll be sitting next to him and we'll be worshiping together. And as teenagers typically do, he'll just zone out and just be standing there. And you might just see me just tap him lightly, just like that. And that tap isn't, I mean, that's a whole paragraph right there. That, that tap right there, he doesn't say, huh? What do, you, what do you need that? He knows exactly, he knows exactly what that means. And part of that tap means we're here to worship. But another part of that tap is, son, you need to be in the audience who you want to see when you're on stage. And I regularly say to him, do you want to look out and see you if you were on the stage? And can I just, don't let this leave the room, but it don't matter how good you preach it. There's always somebody in the audience that ain't buying it. And their affect lets you know that they're not buying it. It doesn't matter how good you're playing. There's somebody in the audience that is scowling. And it may not have anything to do with the music. And so I just picked up a preacher trick that I learned years ago. I'm not looking at everybody because I can't look at some of y'all while I'm preaching. I find a couple of people in every section that are doing this. And you don't know who I'm looking at over here, but the person who's scowling at me, they will snap me right out of it I'm not careful. So I find one or two people in every section. The same is true if you're leading worship. The worship leaders, they don't have the courage to tell you this. I'm going to tell you what they want to tell you. Some of y'all they can't look at. Otherwise, they'll be snapped out of the spirit just like that. And the worship music will go down, down, down. And I wondered if it's maybe too unspiritual to ask you to consider if you were on the stage doing something, would you want to be looking at you? I'm on the stage doing something all the time. And I typically sit down front, one, because I'm easily distracted and I want to focus on the music or what's ever happening, but mostly I want to see the person right, I want the person right here to see me engaged. We have four worship leaders up here, but you know who the chief worship leader is in this church? It's me. And so when you see me down there, I want there to be a praise on my hands, I want to be singing loud, I want to have a, have a you know, step on my feet, right? Because in some ways, I'm discipling the room. And when these worship leaders get down there, I'd like to see them doing the same thing. Because some of you just maybe need to see a video of yourself. You ever saw a video of you dancing and you thought, I thought I was dancing better than that. I don't dance often, but somebody, I saw a video one time, I thought, I thought I was dancing better than that. My sons had this little thing on the iPhone where it slow down and so I was taking a layup and I and they showed me the thing I thought I thought I was jumping higher than that. I felt like a And so we should just put a camera right here. You know how the like the amusement park ride, like you get the video of you after, <laughs> after and some of you will be like this in worship. Like, worship team you can come up. Um why am I saying this? I'm saying this partly because it's good hospitality to, to help us preach and worship well. Let you in on how, how, how big a part you play. But if, if we can see you, the Lord can see you. If we can see you, the Lord can see you. And the psalmist gave us a vivid description of what worship looked like or the possibilities And while we know that we are all different, and we all express our worship and our love for the Lord different, we know there can be some very muted, very subdued expressions of worship. But I believe that since we're bringing an offering, and much of the Christian life is discipling us toward what we would not be doing already, or moving us towards some place where we're not already going, those of us who struggle in this area need to reckon with how I'm showing up before God and others. And I believe that some of us haven't got what we need from the Lord because there might be a connection between the gifts we bring Him and how he might come to dwell in those praises. I'm not promising that if you, if you run laps around here like the Lord's gonna give you what you ask for, I don't want to be misunderstood here. But the scriptures tell us that the Lord inhabits praises of his people. And the Lord knows what you have and what's precious. He, he knows if you're pressing past an obstacle for you, if the praise that you give him is what works for you rather than what's pleasing to him. The Lord knows if you walk in here with an empty basket to fill it with stuff to leave. It's like that person who doesn't bring anything to the cookout except empty Tupperware. You know their intentions. They, get, they fix their to-go thing before they even fix their, their plate. And you may not say something to the person, but you, you see that person, right? You see that person. And my, my charge to you is when it comes to worship, don't be that guy. Don't, don't be that guy. Don't be that person. God inhabits the praises of his people. And the scripture says, let everything that breathes sing praise to the Lord. Can we just check real quick if you're breathing? Now, unless you fell over dead, we're going to give you an opportunity to sing about his goodness. Why don't you stand with us if you can? Lord, forgive us for being preference-driven in relationship to you and worship. Some of us have misunderstood you. Some of us have been misinformed. Some of us have been socialized to just bring you whatever they feel like it. But we know that once we know better, you expect us to do better. That we can't unknow, we can't unhear that you expect us to sing and to bring you an offering that pleases you. So come, Holy Spirit, would you inhabit our praises as we worship you? May we shake this place with singing, because you've been good. In Jesus' name.